Welcome to episode number 22, where we'll discuss common math class challenges and how to overcome them. We are pretty pumped to chat about these class challenges, uh, class challenges our math moment makers are having, and how we can help them work towards fixing them. We'll discuss some challenges that we've heard from educators we've talked to in person, educators that have emailed us, and also math moment makers who have filled out some of our surveys. All right, I'm ready to dive in. John, are you ready? Let's do this. Hit the music. Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. I'm Kyle Pierce from TappIntoTeamMinds.com. And I'm John Orr from MrOr-IsAGeek.com. We are two math teachers who, together, with you, the community of educators worldwide, want to build and deliver math lessons that spark engagement, fuel learning, and ignite teacher action. Before we get to the challenges, are you aware that John and I send emails with tips, resources, tasks, and lesson ideas to over 30,000 math moment makers each and every week? What are you waiting for? Head over to makemathmoments.com and sign up so you don't miss out. All right. So, John, I'm super excited to get going here. And actually, we didn't initially plan on doing this episode right now, but let everybody know, like, why did we decide to sort of pivot and head down the path of classroom struggles in our math classrooms? John, what happened to you recently? Yeah, I'm not sure if you at home listening know, but sometimes Kyle and I travel to districts to present and lead workshops. And when we do that, we hear challenges and struggles from teachers from all over. And I just did one recently from uh, the good folks at uh, York Catholic District School Board near Toronto. And we were chatting and some of the challenges that are coming up are pretty consistent from what I hear when I visit other districts. And I'm sure that's true here for you, Kyle. And so I want to bring out a couple of those concerns and struggles and questions that they had. We just want to chat about those today. And also we want to chat about some of the struggles and concerns we've heard from emails and also uh, struggles and concerns that we've heard when we send out our surveys. So uh, Kyle, let's just start off with one of the main ones I've heard lately from workshop participants, live workshop participants. And here's one that's like kind of like semi-quoted from someone the other day. Here it is. I'm teaching through productive struggle, but students just still won't engage. They are still just waiting to be shown. This teacher, you know, I had been talking about teaching through task and teaching through productive struggle. And this teacher was frustrated with the idea that like, I've been doing, John, what you've been doing, but it's still not coming. It's like the kids are still just waiting to be shown. Kyle, what can we do to help this issue? Yeah, no, John, this is something I'm hearing all the time as well within my own district. And I think of it and I think back to my own classroom. And these are the exact same struggles that you and I have been working through for a number of years. And even still at times, like we find ourselves in these positions. And I know for productive struggle, 
One of the things that I remember myself struggling with was trying to bring in like what I thought was a pretty cool task, but my students sort of like looked at each other and they were kind of confused and actually kind of referencing back to uh, Peter Lildehall's episode on episode 21, where he had a story and it was such a great story where I don't know if you remember him mentioning this, John, where he said like the first time he tried to actually get his kids to actually struggle through a problem. He literally had to leave the room and say he was going to do photocopies because nobody would do anything. They just sat there. And that sounds an awful lot like what you heard recently at this workshop and what we remember from our own classrooms, as well as what we're hearing from people through surveys. For sure. That's a good point about that, Kyle. I think some of the early mistakes I made when assuming my students would dive into those problems on their own, they were like this teacher and what you just suggested waiting for me to show is I would rescue them. And so I would not do what Peter did. I would not just say, I'm not going to do this. I'm actually going to be helpful for you. I'm going to show you how to do this because that waiting time is uncomfortable for teachers. And you're like, okay, wait, how long should I wait for them to start? And as a teacher, you don't want to do that. You have this mentality that I should help my students and helping them means telling them how to do that instead of saying, you know what? I'm going to step back here and you guys are going to do this. You are going to start. So I think that whole like wait time is important to think about. Absolutely. And I think too, like, you know, this could be really difficult to start, especially if let's say, you know, I'm in the middle of a school year or the middle of a semester, if you're on a semestered system, because I have to really focus on building this culture. So if Mm -hmm. I've been teaching halfway through the year and, you know, I've been sort of pre-teaching everything and sort of like setting them up as if I believe, like if I truly am giving you a problem and I'm going to pre-teach pretty much all the tools you need in order to get started, unless it looks exactly like the examples that I'm doing on the board, students tend to not want to get going because it's like they can tell it's like, well, you just taught me all this stuff and somehow I was supposed to make sense of this and it's not making sense. So like you'll have your starters will start and your, you know, sort of waiters are going to continue waiting. And it's just sort of perpetuates this culture. Like you had said, it's like whether you're helping them get started by essentially getting them like, here's the first step, or whether it's like pre-teaching everything, this could really kind of cause, I don't want to say it's a negative culture. It's just sort of a, a culture of reliance, right? Like I need Mr. Or in order to get started on anything that is moderately challenging rather than sort of really building this culture where kids just kind of muck around for a bit. And they just sort of tinker, they try to take what they know and essentially apply what they know in order to get started. And if we build that culture and if we like celebrate the fact that we're not expecting you to do it a set way, we want to see you use your problem solving skills to see where you're at and where we can go from here. I think that's one way to start at least changing and shifting that culture in the classroom. How about you, John? Any others there that you think we should be adding in? Yeah, I think that whole culture idea, and this is the suggestion I gave to this teacher uh, the other day, was that building that culture is probably the most important thing that we can do for our students to feel successful in this environment. And part of that is that consistency. So if we're doing this as a one-off kind of thing, that we're asking them to try this problem right now, but you're not consistently doing that with your students, yeah, there are going to wait 
because that's what they're used to. And that culture and the consistency is the, something that uh, I think we need to make sure like that make that a priority in your classroom. And that doesn't have to be like every big task done. It could be small things like in warmups where when the kids are walking in, the warmup question is on the board and it's like, you're going to get straight to it. Like, go for it. Like, I'm not showing you how to do this problem. And it might be something you did the day before, like expecting them to do work and show solutions either on their desks or on their paper or even on the whiteboards is something that you are going to want to consistently tell your students and prove to your students that uh, you're going to value what they're doing. So that's something I do when they walk in. It's like there's that question that's waiting for them to do and they're doing it right on the desk and then they jump to it. And then it's not such a big thing. It's like, okay, we're going to do another task, guys, or another problem. And here you go. Try this one. Let's do this one and show me some strategies here and then we'll take them up and look at what you've done and we'll do another one. So it's like that idea that uh, math class should be active and we're always having them do it first instead of them just waiting for us to deliver the example. Yeah, no, so true. And one of the struggles as well that's sort of related to this, like, so, you know, I'm a teacher, I'm thinking of myself saying like, ah, I'm trying to engage my students in productive struggle. And now I know it's like, oh, John just mentioned like building that culture. I'm trying now, let's say I'm trying to build my culture. What I tend to find comes next is like this challenge, this new challenge that some of the students who are traditionally like what we'd call all the high achievers in our class start to get really uncomfortable here. So now it's almost like even your starters start stopping initially. Like you had half the class that just sat and waited because they were just waiting because they knew Mr. Pierce was going to go and put all the solutions up on the board. But now the ones who typically would get started are also feeling uncomfortable because they're like, I'm not sure what's happening. And, you know, I argue that that's kind of like a, I'll call it a growing pain of like trying to shift those norms. Like if you're listening to this and let's say you're starting a new semester or you're starting a new school year, or you're thinking ahead for the next school year, trying from like day one to really start building the culture is huge. Although if you're in the middle of a semester, I'm not going to suggest that you wait. But just be ready that, you know, you're going to have to expect that you're going like with change, like humans, we humans, we don't like change very much. We like to stay in our comfort zone. We like to do what we know. We like to proceduralize things, right? Which is tends to be why we teach math quite procedurally. It's like we want to just like be able to just do it without having to commit too much thinking to it. So get ready for that challenge. One of the ways that I think can be really helpful in order to like overcome that new challenge of students maybe pushing back is the idea of carefully selecting the tasks so that they're low floor enough but have a high ceiling. So, you know, we're not coming out and I, I'm thinking back to Dr. Ra Shah's episode, episode 18, where he was mentioning like the biggest mistake he had made early on was like he picked really interesting tasks that would at least get kids curious, but the ceiling or the floor was too high, meaning some of the kids just felt like it was just too difficult to access. So making sure that we start really low floor so that every student in the class can actually do some tinkering, can apply some of their prior knowledge without us having to do that pre-teaching. And then we sort of like 
up that floor, like kind of increase the complexity as we move along, that could be really helpful too. Sure. And, you know, the other good thing about the low floor, high ceiling, and this came out of some of the concerns that I've heard about teaching through tasks is that when those kids are not you know, what happens to those kids who are not getting to the end or getting to, you know, they didn't solve the problem or they didn't grasp the concept exactly by the end of class. And sometimes we think about that and you're like, that's the goal. And I guess why a teacher might bring that up is they're looking almost sometimes teachers are looking for a reason to not teach this way, but that's not going to work for everybody. And one argument against that is like, think about that student who is not going to get that task or answer that problem at the boards or at their desk in that time zone that you gave them to work on it. And they're a little bit lost. Uh, Think about what they were doing in the way that you were previously teaching. They're sitting at their desk, they're copying notes, maybe, and they're still lost. And so you wouldn't have known it. They would have been there. You're walking around maybe checking what they're writing down. But because you didn't ask them to solve a problem or show their thinking, you're left wondering as a teacher, do they know it or do they not know it? By having them attempt the problem first tells you so much information about that student and how you can help them later or even in that moment. And I think that we forget that. It's like we're looking for sometimes reasons to not teach a certain way, but thinking about like, that's actually better than what we were doing before for everybody because there's so much to gain out of that. And to talk about your low floor, high ceiling, like that student, like say they're working on a problem and you were looking towards an abstract algebraic solution eventually, and that student created a table. Well, at least like they created a table on their own. They're trying to link what the problem is to a solution or to a strategy that they have in their minds. That's more than what they would have been doing sitting at their desk, just looking at the notes and copying the notes and hoping that that was going to sink in for them. It just brought up a memory of mine. And it's this idea that like I felt so much more comfortable just reciting my lesson and doing most of the talking. And when I started shifting that culture, like really trying to shift towards this productive struggle and running into all these same challenges that we're hearing from people, what I'm now realizing, and I, it was hard to understand at the time, but what I'm now realizing is now it was just obvious that these challenges had always existed, but I just never listened and I never knew. Just like you said, kids are just copying things down in my class anyway. I can't speak for everyone listening, but they were just copying stuff down. And I thought that things were okay just because they weren't kicking and screaming. And even some kids were like, yeah, they actually liked just copying it down because they didn't really have to do anything, right? They just Mm -hmm. got Mm -hmm. kind of sit there and, you know, kind of mellow out or whatever it is and like not really have to think very hard. And I guess it was like, I just never knew who knew anything about math until a quiz or a test. And by then it was always too late and it was just frustration. So you've sort of scratched the surface on this idea of bringing productive struggle in. And you Mm -hmm. mentioned the student who did a table on their own. That's like a great way. It's like a window into knowing or learning what they know and helping ourselves better understand like, okay, like what do I need to actually show these students? Because I'm going to have to model things along the way. Like we don't want to say direct instructions bad. It's important, but 
let's limit that time to the things kids really need at the times they need them. Mm -hmm. And that might be direct instruction through like sitting down with a group of three kids, right? Whether it's high school or elementary, like sitting down with a group that needs a little push from where they are now to this next little spot in their journey. It's so important. So I'm sure assessment's going to come up again in some of these other challenges. Uh, Why don't we move on to uh, another one? Because all of the things we've mentioned so far are also going to help with these other challenges as well. So Mm -hmm. we'll come back to some of these, but let's move on to the next one, especially with Peter being on our episode, the last episode. uh, I think this next challenge is a really interesting one and kind of builds off of what we just shared through this productive struggle. Yeah. The next kind of question that came out of the workshop uh, was, you know, when you're asking students to follow what Peter's suggesting and having your students work at vertical boards around the room is how do you manage or how do you deal or how do you talk to students who are just goofing around? You know, like you're going to get kids that are like, well, I'm not at my desk and the teacher's not directing me to do anything, but I I got a little bit of freedom here. I can walk around and I'm in a little bit of a group and, and you're standing up and sometimes you're going to get some students that are going to goof around and not do anything at that board. Like, what do you say to that? Yeah, that's definitely, I think maybe one of the reasons why people struggle to just take that first step and try doing something at like a vertical non-permanent surface, VNPS, as Peter likes to call it, the acronym. But really, that could just be at like whiteboards or it could be at chalkboards, like whatever, you know, whatever you have in your classroom or you could use white book, you know, temporary boards that you can put up. But again, like building culture is huge. So it can be hard if we're not doing some of the things we had already mentioned about building those norms and really trying to help students understand that math class is about learning new things, which means, you know, we're not expecting you to know the answers to things and know the process yet. The whole purpose is that you're going to learn something new. So there's going to be struggles along the way. But then like this other part, I guess, is, you know, it builds off of classroom culture. It's like, why are kids doing these problems anyway? Are we giving them these problems because the teacher manual said to Or is it because like we as the teacher, we're actually demonstrating like that there's something really interesting about the work that we're going to do together as a community? Are we doing these because we want to or because we have to? It's like, you know, something on this checklist. And I think about how we run math class and I often look back and I think about how I actually taught math classes very similar. Like kids would come into my class And it was almost like, how many problems am I going to have to do today? It's on my to-do list. I've got to check them off. I got to get them out of the way. And that's kind of how I went through school. And that's kind of how I felt my students were kind of treating the problems we'd solve daily in my math class for a good chunk of time. And I look at how I plan my lessons and it was much the same. It was like looking at the curriculum as this big, long checklist of what's next, you know, like what do we have to do instead of trying to flip that on its head. And we've said it on the show before that we want to look at uncovering the curriculum. That's like an Alex Overwick quote that I heard him say at first, and maybe he got it from somewhere else. But it's this idea of uncovering, scratching the surface on some new idea, and then looking for some sort of interesting curiosity, like surprising aspect. And, you know, the one that pops into my head recently from a workshop I ran was we had all these different comparison scenarios. And the one that still shocks me every time is this idea 
of taking like a typical glass and taking a string and measuring around the opening of the glass and then comparing that length to the height of the glass. And it is like people are shocked by it that for many glasses, like the actual circumference around the glass is longer. And in many cases, like much longer than the height of the glass when like your fast thinking brain wants to like rush to the conclusion that the height will be longer because it just seems reasonable. And, you know, when I'm thinking about this, when kids are standing at that whiteboard, what are they thinking? Are they thinking that this is another problem to do and get out of the way? Or are they looking at that whiteboard and thinking like, man, this is like interesting. And it's like the, the further I go and the further I think about this problem, the more I want to stick to it. It's that sunk cost fallacy that you referenced on a recent episode, John. And it, it's just like the further they go, the harder it is for them to give up on it. Yeah, I think we said this, I think on the last episode too, that students are thinking about math as a get done class. They look at it as a series of things that they have to get done. And then when they get the done, they're done their math instead of an exploratory kind of class. Like, you know, a science class does this really well. A lot of kids know going into science that they're going to do experiments to explore things, yet they don't think that way coming into math class, they think, oh, it's a get done class. I just have to get my homework done. I just have to get the uh, questions done. I don't view it as an exploratory class. And, you know, we're trying to actually change that by having them up at the boards to explore math concepts and how solutions and strategies are linked together, which is one of the big ideas that we're trying to, to show them. And I think we just have to show them. And I think it's good for what you said about norms and something that's normal in your classes to do that. So tying back to what we talked about in culture, but the other thing to think about is also like, what are we assessing when their students are at the boards? Like, are we just assessing them to get done math class or how many questions they can get done or how many right answers they have? For me, you know, a lot of these questions are formative assessment machines. You know, like we discussed just in the last challenge there about when that student shows you that table and you're trying to work towards an algebraic solution, that tells you a lot of information that can be quite powerful for you on assessing that student. Like, where are they in that moment in their learning journey? So I think assessment is huge when the students are at the board because you can see so much more information about that. And I think that can pivot to some of the other questions and struggles people have about assessment. What do you think about that, Kyle? Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I think it's like that shift in assessment is so key. And once we start shifting why we're assessing, and again, if I look at assessment as this checklist thing too, like where I'm like, well, I got this report card coming up, you know, I've got to make sure I've got a mark in the mark book. And, you know, those are structures that we have to just accept, like we can't change those things, you know, the district policy or even the state or the provincial policies sort of guide us in how we have to do some of those reporting pieces. But during the process, we can change that from a, is this for Mark sort of culture to a, hey, listen, everything we do in this class, I am watching. And, and the reality though has to be like, my words have to match my actions. So if I say that everything you do matters, and if kids understand that everything you do matters to help your growth, 
that's the key messaging. We don't want kids thinking and worried that whenever I make an error or mistake that I can't actually, like, I don't want Mr. Pierce to see that because it's going to actually hurt my mark. We don't want kids thinking like that at all. We want them to think that, listen, the process of learning It's sometimes slow, sometimes it's quick, and sometimes there's these muddy waters, muddy area. We don't want kids feeling like they can't ever show that, otherwise their mark is going to reflect it. What we want the mark to reflect is what they currently know now. And through some of the tasks that we're doing, these rich tasks, if we're actually monitoring and if we're actually collecting some evidence of student work, be that through anecdotal notes photos, video, whatever it is that you choose to do, that I think is so key. And it kind of links to a conversation I was having with an NTIP group I was working with. NTIP here in Ontario is called the New Teacher Induction Program. So first-year teachers or new teachers in new roles can join this math community of practice that we've formed. And we had a meeting the other night, and one of the challenges that a teacher had shared was like this idea of assessment as well as like, what do you do for kids who miss a lot of class? And in particular, this teacher was teaching what we would call a workplace class. So this is a class where students tend to take this pathway if they've struggled throughout. And oftentimes this leads to students with like absenteeism issues and, you know, getting them to get and stay engaged in school can be a real challenge. And we reflected on how and what we do for these students. And I remember vividly like a student coming back and in the name of fairness, and I'm using bunny ears, I say that a lot, like fairness was an equality was that, well, all the other kids did all of this stuff while this student was gone. So here's the package that you need to now work on. And, you know, I reflect back on that and I had since changed that. So I'm not doing those types of things now. But when I look back on it, I'm going, well, no wonder the student would show up a day and then not show up for another five days. It's like, you know, instead of me saying like, I'm so happy you're here, let's get you in. Let's figure out where you are on these concepts and really just trying to figure out, did that student even need to do that, the stuff that they missed? Or do they actually have an understanding of those concepts? So again, it comes down to like, what am I assessing? Am I assessing the quantity of work that Mm -hmm. students are doing? Hey, Math Moment Makers, Kyle here. And I've got just a quick message specifically for our district-level mathematics decision makers out there. Do you feel like you're spinning your wheels when making district-level goals for mathematics programming from kindergarten through grade 12? Setting new goals each year only to find little to no real shift in pedagogical practice or educator content knowledge across the district as a whole? Take a moment to book a short call with our team so we can learn more about your specific district and educator learning needs in mathematics so we can assist you in taking the first step of many in the right direction. Visit makemathmoments.com forward slash district to book a web call with our team today. We have a limited number of spots for districts just like yours, so don't wait head to makemathmoments.com forward slash district and grab a spot in our calendar now. Or am I understanding the actual learning and what they actually know and can demonstrate for me? So Mm -hmm. these are like 
big, big pieces, but I think they all tie into these common challenges that we're hearing. So it's really a philosophical yeah. shift. And then understanding that fairness or equality is not the same as equity. And we can speak to this in so many different sure. areas, not just with students who are missing, but we also have, you know, marginalized students and students that come from different backgrounds, or we have students that are, you know, are, have recently immigrated to the country. Like, I always said to kids, or I never always, I should never say always, more recently, I would say to students that what is right or fair for you is not the same as what's fair for this other student. And especially higher achievers that would complain like, well, how come that student doesn't have to do this or that or the next thing? I would always say to them, like, don't you think you would rather pick up on it like a little quicker, like let's say a student wanted to reassess on something, you know, and that student said, well, I did it the first time. And I'm like, wouldn't you rather get it the first time? Or would you rather have gone through all of the struggle that this student's gone through having to come in at lunch or after school or going and spending all that extra time? And for you, you probably spent a third of the time actually wrapping your head around the content. So you finished a bunch of practice problems. That's great but you didn't have nearly the same amount of stress, anxiety, or just struggle in order to get there. And I think if we all sort of think about those things, it can really help us build that classroom culture, that non-threatening classroom culture we're looking for, and then sort of get rid of a few of these challenges along the way. For sure, for sure. You know, when you bring that idea up about what's fair is extremely important. For example, in my grade nine class, we were giving out quarter reports a little bit of time ago, and I had a student who was consistently absent, yet when they came in, they demonstrate so much understanding of math. And I felt very confident in this student's ability to do whatever we were going to do. And every time I gave them, say, a linear relation problem, no trouble with that problem, but missed many, many, many class days. So they had a ton of, of knowledge already in their brains and with them. And yet when it was time to hand out mark reports, a student who had been in class all day, but still, you know, struggled on some concepts and couldn't consistently demonstrate some of those same linear ideas, that student had a worse mark than the kid who was absent so much. And, you know, that student said that. It was like, what do you mean? Like, how does he not come every day? And I come every day and he has a better mark than me. You know, like it's something that we have to tell our students too. Like we have to communicate that to them about, it's about our understanding. It's not about how much work we're doing. It's about how we're working through the concepts, how we're proving that to the teacher, but also to each other and what strategies we're using to connect ideas. So it's something that we definitely have to, I think, communicate all around. It's not something you want to keep secret to yourself. It's not a secret to kind of like hold and say like, this is where your mark comes from. But yeah, like, I think it's a super important to shift that belief about a mark is not how much work you do in class. It's about your grasp of the curriculum overall expectations. You know, like what are the curriculum, your mark is supposed to represent your understanding of those concepts at the end of the year, not how many assignments you did. You know, and something that you haven't mentioned, but I know is true from knowing you so well and your beliefs is that it's not like you're encouraging that student not to come to school. I can guarantee that you're having those conversations with that student. You're trying to find ways to help that student feel like coming to school is actually 
really a good thing. It's better than not being there. But, you know, just like so many other things, there's so many different things going on in the home lives of so many different students. Like we don't understand as much as we want to. We don't understand what it's like if that student's coming from a home with maybe one parent or or maybe is actually doing some of the, you know, raising some of their younger siblings or whatever it might be, um, trying to obviously deal with those two issues separately, right? Like your understanding is one thing. And when we don't grade you on your attendance, we don't grade you on those things. And I think about it back to like sports is always an easy analogy. You know, that first line center of a hockey team may work out the least out of everyone on the entire team. It's not going to put that person on the fourth line if they're still demonstrating the skills they need to to be the top line center, that is what that position is all about. Of course, the coach is going to say, we want you to work harder because you can do even better things, but you're not going to put somebody in there just because they worked out an hour longer than the other person. So these are things that's really difficult for us because that's not the way things were taught with us. And the last concept that I'll mention here, the last challenge, but we'll talk about it a little more deeply in a minute, is just this idea that unless we understand the mathematics conceptually, unless we understand the content, it can be very, very challenging for us to do the things that we've already mentioned. Like, how do I shift my assessment if I'm only really confident in how the formula works and I don't actually understand how it develops. Like, how am I going to help that student who's used a solution strategy that I'm unfamiliar with because I'm not really sure how the mathematics develops? This is a big one that I think we're going to uncover a little bit later in the episode, but one that tends to, I think, be like maybe one of the big overarching issues that it can be harder for us to articulate. But a lot of these other issues sort of are kind of symptoms of this bigger issue. And as we go to solve those, you start moving deeper and deeper and you realize, oh, it comes down to like, if I want to do a low floor, high ceiling task, I need to understand where this math came from in order to bring that floor down. Now, do you think, Kyle, that is just a time thing? Like I've been teaching for 10 years. I know the curriculum inside and out. I know how all the concepts connect together. Or is that something like a first year second year teacher can do? Like, what are some quick tips? I know we're going to dive into it in a minute, but what are some quick ideas about that? Like, I used to think that when I had to teach accounting, and I've mentioned this story before, for the first time, right before I had to teach it, I didn't know how all the curriculum fit together. And I didn't know all the ins and outs of accounting for so that I could easily answer questions and redesign some of you know, those lessons. It was only because I really felt comfortable in my math teaching abilities and also my curriculum and how all math links together that I was allowed, you know, able to change a lot of my practice in math class, but not accounting. I couldn't do that in accounting. And I know that if I had more time, like if I taught accounting for five years, then I probably would have that confidence. But is there anything like a first year teacher can do to build that up? Absolutely. Like, John, I'm so happy you brought that up because I think experience is like, that's what builds expertise, right? I mean, the word is a derivation from that initial word of building like experience is key. But I'm going to argue that even experience alone 
is not enough. So for first year teachers, absolutely like the five practices is a great way to start scratching the surfaces. So, you know, we've mentioned many times before this anticipation stage. So like trying to solve a problem in as many ways as you possibly can beforehand and to really start thinking to yourself and just essentially reflecting on where does this come from and seeking out like Googling. There's great books out there. Like a great book is a John Vandewall book on teaching developmentally elementary and middle school mathematics, like fascinating stuff that you learn from books like that. And it doesn't have to be like, read it cover to cover. It could be like, Hey, I'm working on this topic. And you just go to that part of the book to get a sense of where did this come from? So those are like some easy starter moves. I'm going to argue that like I was teaching for like eight years and I taught some of the same courses. So I felt super well versed in the curriculum, but I was still teaching it all procedurally. And the challenge with that is there's some kids in my class that are going to be fine with that. Like I was that kid, John, you were that kid where we were like, yeah, just give it to me. I can quickly memorize this, whether I understand where it came from, like conceptually or not. But some other students are going to struggle with that. So, you know, we'll dive a little deeper into this in a bit as we start uncovering some challenges. But why don't we dive into a few of the things that we've heard and these are like challenges as well, like that link to these that you heard at your workshop the other day. So that's why we've kind of paired them together. So when we think about the feedback that we've been getting, first off, we get a ton through email. And John, how much do we love hearing from people when we get emails from them letting us know like the things they're appreciating, but then also the other things that they're hoping we can do? Yeah, for sure. Like every time we get an email, it just it's great for us because it makes it feel like us spending time right now talking about things and delivering that to people, it makes it worth it. You know, I think we're trying to make a difference. That's why we're doing this, not just for our students, but for as many students as we can. We strongly believe that we can change the way math is viewed. Hey there, Math Moment Makers. Are you a dedicated listener? Like I'm talking, have you been listening for a couple of months, maybe even a couple of years? Well, if you haven't taken a moment to leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform, it would mean so much to us. It'll take you under one minute uh, so that you can help more educators see and experience the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. Uh, do us this huge solid. Uh, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And uh, here is today's episode. by the general public and we can't just do that alone. And so we got to share what we're talking about. So we love getting, you know, and hearing from people, just like Kyle said, that's exactly why or how we decided on what we're going to do next, um, be it podcast episodes or blog posts or three act math tasks, live or online workshop content, the feedback we receive from you guys shapes what we focus on next. Right. Yeah. Like if you people could only look, I actually have two screens in front of me here, John. I know you have a similar setup and on one of my screens is still like my Asana board. Asana is like a task management system. It's amazing. We use it for like the podcast. Yeah. We use it 
for our blog, but I also use it for like my district job where like I have all the different things that I need to do there. I would definitely be using it when I go back to the classroom to like organize even my content that I want to be teaching because it's so easy to like shift around and basically like we're constantly shifting things around like this episode wasn't supposed to happen today or this particular week, we actually had something else in mind. But after all of the different challenges that we've been receiving lately, and then essentially you going to do that workshop and, you know, again, hearing it and you sending me that message saying, hey, like, I think our next episode, like we need to hammer through some of these. That's pretty significant. So that's sort of what shifted us towards this episode on challenges for sure. Yeah. And although we received, you know, a lot of emails and direct messages through Twitter and Instagram and even on our, you know, at Make Math Moments accounts, we thought it would make sense to send a quick survey to some of our almost 30,000 friends who currently receive our weekly Making Math Moments That Matter email. It was to give us some more specific feedback based on some of what we've been hearing sporadically over the last handful of years. That is crazy, John. Are you like 30,000 are on that list now? That's so, uh, that's mind blowing. If you're not on that list, you definitely want to dive in. You can get on that list by heading to any of our websites, whether it's like makemathmoments.com or John's site, Mr. Or-isageek.com or my site, tappinateenminds.com. Once you're on that list, you will get weekly content, which is awesome. But one of the things that we recently did was we actually sent out to a handful of those people, we actually sent out a survey to kind of dive into some of these challenges. So the ones that we had spoke to, we actually wanted to hear like from them. And then also we asked them a couple questions. So what do you say, John? Should we dive into some of what we heard here? Yeah, man, let's uh, dive in. Let's do that for sure. Awesome, awesome. One thing we've heard loud and clear from the emails we've received over the years is that in general, teachers really want to find better ways to engage students in their classroom. So we mentioned it earlier, this idea of like trying to get kids into a productive struggle. Well, we believe we've got to find ways to spark curiosity in order to gain the attention of the learners and get them to invest in the tasks that we're trying to put in front of them. So like now in my experience over these last couple of years as a kindergarten through grade 12 math consultant, I've spent a lot of time in elementary schools like here in Ontario, that means kindergarten through grade eight, if we're talking about elementary. And I've definitely noticed that students in the early years from kindergarten to say like grade four and five tend to engage in activities without the same level of curiosity planning that we need to do for like grade six and up or so. Like, I'm sure John, you'd agree, like when you work with like younger children, it just feels like they're like more naturally curious. Yeah, like those hands just shoot right up the moment you ask questions, right? And high school teachers are like, yeah, yeah, that doesn't happen in my room all the time. Yeah, right, right. I know you and I used to talk when we were starting this journey, when we first sort of met and we were like, how are we going to do this? We always like sort of thought it was like we placed the blame on the kids, right? They're not curious, but we realize now that like the collective we, like we teachers have sort of accidentally suppressed the curiosity by rushing to algorithms, right? But I think, John, I think you'd agree, we can definitely undo this, right? You right? Know what? I think you're absolutely right. If we spend time thinking about how we can serve up mathematical delight for our students each day, their natural curiosity will once again flourish. And, uh, you know, like best of all, is that this can be done in so many ways. As we've shared on this podcast a bunch of times, 
that we're big fans of Dan Meyer's three-act math approach, and we love creating tasks that follow that similar structure using videos and images that we share on tappedintominds.com and also on my site, mrorr-isageek.com. Right, right. And that's one of the, I think one of the number one things we get feedback on is like these tasks that we have on our site. And, you know, people ask us for certain topics and things like that. And those are in that Asana board, like they are going to come, I promise. But the problem that we hear, like, so this is some of the feedback we get and the challenges people get is like, they try to run them off of our site. Like, so they go to my site, for example, and you know, they go to run the, you know, we'll say the donut delight task and you watch this video and around the video is like all the text explaining like how you run it and in your classroom. And it's like in plain sight for all your kids to see, right? Because it's shining up on the screen from the projector. And kids are often catching a glimpse of the learning goal or maybe like the teacher moves or even like the question you're about to ask. And while we're trying to spark curiosity, it sort of does the opposite, right? Like you get a bit of a curiosity killer going on there. Yeah, I've seen this happen too. It's like you're playing act one video. At the end of the video, you have to rush to push pause because YouTube shows the related videos to the one that you just watched. Like this is helpful when just watching, you know, like what you want to watch on YouTube, but it's not helpful if the related video that pops up is like act two or the third act, or even like the answer, all of a sudden there's the answer. It's kind of like, uh, oops, uh, which essentially, you know, it just ruins everything. Not only have we received tons of emails about this over the years, but the recent survey we sent out showed that this was a problem worth solving for over 75% of those who responded. So that's a big number. Right, right. Yeah. Like we specifically asked them about some of these issues because they were coming up through email. So we just made a like, you know, how true is this basically like a Likert scale? And yeah, that was a large number. Like it was actually a bit shocking because we had no idea that that was that big of an issue. But then something else we also asked was just this idea, you know, some people were asking us about like, how do you run the task? Like, I want to know how how to run this one, like not just in general, how you run a, a task, but just this specific one, what would you do? Like, what did you have in mind for a certain concept? And then also like a lot of the feedback we got, some people were saying like, you know, the internet in my classroom, it's not very good at all. Like we'd love to be able to just like download the video. And I'd also like to have something to like guide me along, like some sort of like cheat sheet that I could print out and have with me. So I don't have to like keep referencing my computer for like next steps. So, you know, on the survey, we asked questions about that. And actually over 80% of people said that those were challenges that they were having and that they would like to have some sort of solution for, for sure. Mm -hmm. And it's so great uh, that educators are able to self-reflect and realize that no matter what we do in our classrooms, if we don't have the attention of our students, then, you know, nothing we do is going to matter. And that leads us to the next challenge that has come up over the years. And that is the struggle of how to teach math conceptually in order to build procedural fluency. You know, for many of us, we were taught fairly procedurally, like we've talked about many times on the podcast, uh, we were given the def, we give the definition, the rules up front, show the steps, blah, 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 the formulas and skills and to the same types of problems, the textbook and on assessments. Well, this approach was helpful to solve problems that look the same as the ones we're doing in our lessons. You know, the Math Moment Maker community has clearly articulated that this approach is not helpful. And we've said this before, that our students become resilient problem solvers. And that's a huge one for us. And kids tend to shut down when they're given a problem that does not look like the problem that's modeled in front of them. Yeah, we both know, like we've done 
that for years and years. I always say like the jobs that we're preparing kids for, it's not to find the area of a circle 50 times over and over again, right? Like computers took those jobs a long time ago. And while we want kids to be able to solve basic problems as well, like we don't want them to not have those skills, we need to go beyond that if we want to like create those resilient problem solvers. So, you know, like for example, like some of the feedback we got through this survey and through emails a little while back, we got like one, like this one teacher said, like, I need more support with creating visual representations for various math concepts, especially with major content or big ideas in primary and junior grades, which is like middle school grades for our US listeners. Like we also see the word differentiation coming up all the time or hearing comments like this teacher who said, wait, like they wanted to find ways to reach all kids when your class consists of a diverse group of students with various levels of readiness. So for me, I'm looking at like that type of feedback and I feel like they link back to some of the challenges we shared earlier, like differentiation to me is creating a lesson experience with a low floor and high ceiling and building that culture so all students can access the task. These are all huge concerns for all educators, including us. And what we realized a number of years ago was that when we taught students procedurally, we were only able to reach one group of students in our classroom. Those who were right in the middle, you know, the middle we had been planning our lessons around. For some students who aren't as lucky as those who can memorize more easily with or without understanding, they get left behind the dust. Yeah, from this survey, we had over 91% of the respondents stated that they were challenged with teaching mathematics conceptually so they could avoid rushing to the algorithm. So John and I, over the past while, have been really trying to think of like, how do we actually help beyond you know, what we're doing with our weekly emails where we address some of these challenges and give people tips and strategies as well as on the podcast, bringing on awesome, awesome people like Dan Finkel and Joe Bowler. And we had James Tanton on and, you know, uh, Sunil came on the show and gave us some great tips. So like all of these are great, but we wanted to figure out like ways that we could address some of these specific issues. So we actually have come together and actually put together what we'd like to call the Making Math Moments That Matter Academy. And this is going to be launching quite soon. And we're going to be talking a little bit about what's going to be inside of that academy for you folks who have an opportunity to become founding members. So like, John, like, what's this academy going to be all about? Let's share some of those details just for those who are sitting here going like, great, these challenges here, you've nailed some of them, but I want to go a little bit deeper and I want to be able to like have continual support throughout. Yeah, Kyle, we are really excited for this. I think it's going to be a huge game changer for so many teachers. And you can definitely learn more right now if you went to makemathmoments.com forward slash academy. That's makemathmoments.com forward slash academy. You can learn all about the academy when it opens. And if you're listening to this later, like not the week it goes live, this episode, it's most likely that it is also ready for you to check out and become a member. But we, you know, we built this academy to 
create memorable math moments daily with access to Curiosity rich tasks, in-depth PD video trainings on how to implement those exact tasks, and also a system for making these moments a reality. We've put a lot of thought into what our community needs, just like what we just kind of outlined from the survey results. And we've built something to help there. And one of the things that we think, you know, like one of the great things as a member, we are aiming and our promise to you is that you're going to start to build a classroom you're going to love and that generates resilient problem solvers, which is something that we are always gunning for. And also you're going to have happy students and proud parents for sure. You're going to gain confidence in your educational role. You could become, you know, a math leader in your school. And I think we talked about that before. It's like, how can I build my math confidence? We're aiming to do that in the academy is help you get a better understanding of the math you are teaching. So for those of you listening, and one of the challenges is classroom management, like we're going to try to help you become infinitely better at classroom management through actually building your students' understanding in math. Many classroom management struggles come from this inability for us to find ways to engage our students, to get them to like see math as something more than just problems that they have to do and it becomes something more like problems problems they want to solve, like want to actually come to class and solve. For those of you looking for an upgrade in your pay scale with Meaningful PD, we will be assigning credit hours as well for becoming the best teacher and mentor you can be as well. You know, and another great thing about what we're trying to create here is that you're going to tap into the collective knowledge experience of the community. I think that's going to be huge for us to come to one place together and share insights, ideas, strategies that we're all been using to make math moments a matter for our students and we can support each other. We've built some systems in the academy to help do that the most. Also, we think that we want to provide you, like we have done a ton of thinking already on what works and what doesn't work. We're going to eliminate the guesswork for you. And, you know, there's some of the challenges that teachers have said is like, I've got all these ideas, but I don't know which works consistently and what doesn't work consistently, routinely and consistently. We're going to be releasing, you know, content monthly that shows you what is working in our classrooms and what doesn't work. So we want to eliminate that guesswork for you so that you can stop throwing stuff at the wall and hoping that something sticks. Uh, we want to give you the resources you can count on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, while we believe that this academy is going to be helpful for all educators from K through 12, like we're initially going to focus in on the content areas around that middle school range of students. So, you know, junior intermediate for our Ontario friends and that middle school range for our common core friends. But ultimately right now, like what's already going to be ready for diving into when you break through the doors as a founding member of the Math Moment Maker Academy is the brand new course called The Concept Holding Your Students Back. Well, what concept is it? You're going to have to dive into the nine module course that's chopped up into small manageable chunks that will be dripped out over time for you to work away on at your own pace. We've also managed to address the most frequent requests from our participants who have taken our 12-week online workshop, which was wanting to have access to the content after the 12 weeks ends. We've managed to bring over all of that content and make Math Moment Academy members who have participated in that online workshop will now have access to the content for as long as you are a member. 
Yeah, this is good to mention, Kyle, because we launch our online workshop, which is different than the Academy, twice a year. And we're launching again in September. We're going to open the doors to the online workshop, which is that 12-week online workshop. In that workshop, it's almost like an accelerator program where we show you how to make those lessons and everything that goes into creating those lessons, where our Academy is not only extending that, but providing you like more ongoing support on a regular basis something that's like the workshop itself is kind of like a 12-week program, but the academy is something that's continually, something that we're going to be always adding to. It's more up-to-date live for sure. So the workshop opens twice a year, once in the fall and once kind of right after January time. But the academy is going to be kind of your continual support. Awesome, awesome. And one area that I love the most, and we already have a handful of tasks in this area is What we've done is we've gone and we've not only created some new tasks that aren't available on our sites, but we've also made the actual experience much smoother to address some of those challenges that we stated earlier. So, you know, we have it where not only can you download them all and just get them and get that downloadable guide and PDF that you can print out like people were requesting, but also we have it where there's like an experience through tabs. It's like a progression so that when you are in the sparking curiosity stage of the task, you actually only see that video. And there's one tab that has all of the teacher notes with the teacher guide. So it's like you won't run into that problem where you're in the middle of class and kids can see the prompts up on the screen and they can kind of, oh, and then the related videos show up at the end of the act one video. Like we've got basically that all tab tabbed out so that you get to sort of control the lesson way more fluently and sort of get the distractions off the screen. So that was something like I was really excited to be able to provide as well as the ability to download some of those. So we are super excited to bring in our founding members. Um, Something that's super cool when you're a founding member is not only are we going to be building and continuing to build this out over time, but we're also going to take that feedback from early members, these founding members, in order to shape out like what this is going to continue looking like moving on, as well as those founding members are going to be coming in for the lowest cost ever. It's going to be the lowest price it'll ever be. And then in a few weeks time, we're going to actually be raising it up to the actual price, but founding members will keep that pricing forever. Yeah. Like as long as you're a member in good standing, you are going to be like grandfathered in at that pricing. So uh, definitely head over. We've talked about so many challenges here and how we can address them. And if you are interested in the Academy, you know, it's not for everybody. It's if you need it, it's there. If you don't need it, no worries. But if you are interested in the Academy, head over to makemathmoments.com forward slash Academy to learn more about that. Kyle, what do you say? I think we've talked about some challenges and how to overcome some of those challenges, given some next steps. So this is a pretty good episode. What do you think, Kyle? Yeah, I'm surprised that we're already at like the hour mark. I was thinking, you know, it would be a pretty short episode, but yeah, I think we went through some great challenges that come up often in the beginning. I hope people are seeing that, you know, many of these challenges are all kind of linked to this big idea of getting a better handling on how do we teach mathematics conceptually or developmentally so that kids, we can lower that floor, raise that ceiling, spark that curiosity and get all kids doing the math in our classroom because they want to engage Mm -hmm. in the math instead of just trying to get it 
done. So again, the Academy, I think you said it well uh, there, John, it's there for those who are looking to like dive in and just ongoing support so that you can actually implement these things, whether you've been in our 12 week workshop or not, it's a great place to get in, build that community and also help us help even more math moment makers out there in order to make math moments that matter for all of our students. So John, what are you thinking? I'm thinking that's a wrap on this episode. That is a wrap. All right. We want to make sure that you don't miss out on any new episodes as they come out each week. So be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform or just search for Making Math Moments That Matter on your favorite platform. Also, if you're liking what you're hearing, please share the podcast with a colleague and help us reach a wider audience by leaving a review on iTunes and tweeting us at Make Math Moments on Twitter. Show notes and links to resources for this episode can be found at makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 22. Again, that is makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 22. You can also find Make Math Moments on all social media platforms and seek out our free private Facebook group recently named to Math Moment Makers K through 12. Well, until next time and until we see you founding members in the Academy, I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. High fives for us. And high fives for you. If you are a district leader of mathematics, a math coach, a math curriculum coordinator, a superintendent and principal, getting teacher buy-in for effective math teaching practice is top of mind. And plans only go so far. You can make you know detailed plans and, and carefully designed goals with clear objectives and key results that are measurable. But that can feel like it all falls flat if we can't engage our teachers in the work. Working with teachers who do not want to change their teaching practices is one of the most frustrating and challenging parts of our job. How do I help teachers engage in effective teaching practices when they keep pushing us away? If you can't reach the tipping point in mass adoption of effective mathematics teaching strategies, then it's it's likely we won't see student improvement in mathematics. We have a free training uh, an accompanying workbook for leaders of mathematics like you. Uh, the, math, the Make Math Moments team, myself, John, and Kyle walk you through our four-stage process uh, we use with district partners to create clear, measurable, sustainable PD action plans, but more specifically on how to also get teacher buy-in so that it drives student engagement. So step one, register for this free training, get your planning workbook, um, and then watch the training. Schedule some time on your calendar so you can watch it and go through the workbook after completing that workbook, you're going to have a clear, measurable vision, action plan for mathematics to get more teacher buy-in, but also be able to hit your goals for the 2024-2025 school year. So head on over to makemathmoments.com forward slash four stages to start this free training.